views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil. When the feast that feeds you starves our father's children. When snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up. Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate, agitate, agitate on the issue of 21st century legalized slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with New Abolitionist and Axmas Johan and Elia and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is the February 8th broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio, six weeks deep into 2017 and the resurrection of the American slaveocracy state. Tonight, we mark the eighth day of this Black History Month. Our guest this broadcast will be the lead organizer of the Savannah, Georgia, August 19th Millions for Prisoners March on Washington, Sister T. Hickson, the state leader of the Inmates Lives Matter Georgia chapter. Just prior to our broadcast tonight, she attended a town hall discussion on the 13th Amendment sponsored by the Savannah, Georgia Collegiate Chapter of the NAACP. The Sixon will give us a first-hand report on the event. We'll also go over the recent press release from Jailhouse Lawyer Speaks on the August 19th march. Tonight, we will share new information which shows the U.S. has spent more than double what was previously reported on incarceration in the United States. During the broadcast, we hope to share information that puts the U.S. model of modern slavery into a global perspective. If we are fortunate, we may get a call tonight from our former guest and writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad, Sunni Moses. From what we gather, today the monster who tortured him and many others into a false confession, former New York Police Department detective Louis Scarcella, took the stand in the latest of his convictions to come under review. Our writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad this week is Tony Wright, who walked out of the prison where he had spent 25 years of his life for a brutal crime he didn't commit. The abolitionist in profile will be provided by Scotty Reed. If you'd like to share a comment or question, just call us toll-free from the U.S. and Canada at 1-866-510-9025 or 704-802-5056. 
you can chat with us and others by logging in at uberconference.com slash Black Talk Radio Network. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Scotty? Serve your honey. Hey, what's going on, Max? Good to hear your voice again. Um, or oh, I've just talked to you the other day. Everybody home? Max, I was just a talking man, and I had myself muted on the board. So apologies for that. Good to speak with you again, Max. And I'm looking forward to hearing about this NAACP-sponsored event concerning the 13th Amendment, which we explained from day one of this program about five years ago, never abolished slavery. So I am interested to hear about how it was being discussed and uh, definitely want to hear from our guests about her efforts on behalf of prisoners. Indeed, same here. Is Johanna with us today? I don't think Rohana is with us. If I'm not mistaken, he may have posted in the planning community that uh, he would not attend tonight. Oh, okay. All right. I, I didn't see that one. Well, no problem at all, man. There's so much to talk about tonight. And, you know, I would like to give a lead-in of how we came to this point about this town hall meeting uh, because I actually found it by mistake. As you know, I've been reaching out to the NAACP, the uh, American Civil Liberties Union, and other organizations like that that are supposed to protect our constitutional rights, and in particular, like the NAACP, you look out for the advancement of color people. So with us dealing with this 13th Amendment issue of modern-day slavery, I thought, why not reach out to them and get an official stance? And I did that on a recorded call, which many have heard, uh, where we found out that there really was no uh, official stance on the 13th Amendment. Not at the national level, right? Yes. Not by the national. Yeah. But um, the individual. And then later on, with somebody who I believe is a friend of yours said that there was a meeting last year with the NAACP, and apparently it was put to vote whether or not to push towards a conventional, a, a, a constitutional convention to address taking out the exception clause. And it was voted down saying that the climate was just too hostile at the moment. Yeah, we talked so, about that last week. Um, right, right. Yeah. So I'm just building up to why she's calling in the night. And then finally, I said, you know what, let me see if there's anything that says an official stance. And by happenstance, I found that they were having a meeting in Georgia. So I called the Georgia chapter representative for the Millions for Move, uh, Prisoners March Against Washington and then told her about it. And she was like, oh, my God, I didn't even know. It's right down the street from me, Max. I'll make sure I'll be there. Well, Max, was that wasn't by happenstance. That wasn't an yes. accident. Uh, that's the path that you're on. You're on that abolitionist path, man, and that's where that abolitionist path and you tracking down leads led you. So it wasn't by happenstance. It was meant for you to know, and it was meant for the other people to find out about it. So that's just you doing your job as a modern-day abolitionist. But I would also like to just add, in addition to the uh, individual outreach efforts to these organizations that you mentioned that you have been doing, if you recall, Max, and it's probably in the archives of New Abolitionist Radio, but when we first uh, posted, I, I posted the text, I wrote it up, but I did it in all of our names, but posted to the White House website. This is like when uh, CEO Obama first launched it. And if you've got something like 50,000 signatures 
you he would address it like you know how he posted YouTube videos, a little video addressing he's supposed to address the petitions that got fifty thousand signatures. So we I posted that petition about the thirteenth amendment asking for the exception clause to be removed and to acknowledge that slavery was in fact never abolished. And we was able to get uh, Boyce Watkins, a celebrity uh, who who's uh, pretty well known. We got him to share it. Um, the petition that was on the website as well. We got a couple of thousand signatures, and then shortly after we posted our petition, it was the bar was raised from fifty thousand to a hundred thousand signatures. I mean, they they raised the bar by fifty thousand on you. And and so, you know, I also in support of that petition, trying to get people to endorse the petition. That's why I reached out to Boyce Watkins and he did endorse it and and share it uh, on his social network, uh, um, his social networking profiles. But I also, Max, went to the bank in Mount Holly because I don't have a fax machine, but to use their fax machine where Black Talk Media Project has an account anyway. So she faxed the uh, text of the petition as well as a, a letter I put in there to National Action Network, to um, Dick Gregory, because I was able to get his, or he has an organization or a foundation, got their fax stuff from some people that I knew uh, had close contact with him because he'd be on a radio program doing interviews all the time. I faxed it to him. And if I, I could be wrong, but I may have faxed it to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund as well. Never got a response from any of those people. And that was like, Max, what, maybe 2013 when they put that website petition site up. So this is how long we've been trying to get. 2013. Okay. I I think it was about, yeah, a little over three years ago when we, I mean, but we even shared the link. They scrubbed it from the website, but Google saved, you know, like the link to it. It'll still come up, but if you click on it, they scrubbed it. So for a very long time, the abolitionists have been reaching out to these quote-unquote mainstream organizations like have been mentioned and and from the people that's in charge of running those organizations, setting the policy, their boards and what have you, they have not backed abolitionism. To me, they have bought into the symptom of the problem. The problem is slavery, but they want to address symptoms, and they fall into the mass incarceration crowd. I don't mean that in a disrespectful uh, way to anybody who uses that term, but words are important, and it's not mass incarceration uh, we're dealing with. It's slavery. It's slavery. We're trying to prevent it from becoming mass enslavement, Uh, um, but it is, in fact, slavery according to the 13th Amendment and the Confederate the Confederates who helped the uh, so-called Union write the 13th Amendment. Thank you, Michael Cord, Attorney Michael Cord up there in Philadelphia, who did that research to find out that the so-called defeated Confederates had a hand in writing that. So, of course, it's going to have a loophole. But, yeah, Max, thank you for your efforts. And we've been putting them out there for a while. We knew what we had to do from the very beginning. We knew we had our work cut out for us because it really took a re-education process. We had to 
uh, have an anti uh, counter propaganda team going in order to get the truth out. Because you know, for so long they've been lying about when and how slavery ended because it never did. It's uh, right there in our Thirteenth Amendment. So we knew that after 150 years of people believing this lie, it wasn't going to be overnight that we woke them up. But uh, over these years, the past five years, we've done a monumental task of making just that happen, and we've seen it in every arena. So when it was just a few slavery abolitionists five years ago, now there's an army of them, and they're everywhere. <laughs> Look, so much so that millions will be marching upon Washington this August 19th. Um, for our caller, Ms. Hickson, if you happen to be called in, just press star, star to unmute yourself and let us know when you're here, and, uh, and we'll start with you whenever you get in. I'm here. Oh, welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, Ms. Hickson. Is it Thank Mrs. you. Or Thank Mrs. you for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, Ms. Hickson, this is uh, Scotty Johanning. Couldn't be with us tonight, but we welcome you to New Abolitionist mm-hmm. Radio Max. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You're, Thank you. I just came out of the meeting. It's not over, but I had to go because I don't have transportation, so I had to get a ride, and so I, I couldn't stay on to the end. It was a great meeting, great forum. All right. Well, I just want to give out uh, some technical advice, Max. Um, I also know you're in the field, so keep a check on your bars, bro, because you were starting to kind of sound uh, distorted. Um, but uh, please okay. continue with the interview. And again, welcome, Ms. Hicks. And I'm just sitting here Thank and you. going to listen to you and Max talk about what happened. Well, I gave him the breakdown of how we came to this point where you went down, you know, inadvertently found out it was going on right there in your neighborhood. And I've really been looking forward to hearing what occurred. You know, I was supposed to be there myself, but I know I don't have the transportation like you today, as a matter of fact. Fortunately, we do have abolitionists in the field who could come and maybe add some sense to what's happening. So if, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about yourself uh, as an organizer for the Millions for March, uh, Millions for Prisoners March for Washington, and uh, what you found out today, what you heard, and what you might have said. Okay, uh um, well, as you may know, I'm the local leader for Savannah for the march and also uh, the head of the Inmates Lives Matter in the state of Georgia. And, I mean, my as far as this is concerned, this goes way back for me. This is not new as far as my involvement in the criminal justice system. And as far as the 13th Amendment is concerned, as, as discussed, and I just want to point out that the panel in particular was so amazing, I was blown away. One in particular that I can't even wait to try to go home and see if I can find him on Facebook, all of them in particular, but this, he, he mentioned some things that just really hit home for me. And I mean, as the amendment says, I mean, you know, slavery is illegal. I'm not quoting it verbatim, unless, and, that, and, and obviously slavery is not over um, based on those words. Um, and a lot of people are mentioning abolishment or whatever, or amendment. I'm not, I don't know. I, I don't know what to say of that. Me personally, I say amend because we know if it's abolished, what may happen, especially with Trump being our president. Um, but everybody who was on the panel, you know, was very candid and clear about their, you know, just how they feel about that amendment and how it has tortured us and as far as mass incarceration is concerned and how it has just, you know, been used, especially with slavery being over, the country had to run in some kind of way. The economics, I mean, you know, it went downhill until they begin the process of mass incarceration, enslavement, um, and things of that nature. And, you know, and just implementing a lot of unnecessary rules for black males during that time to 
justify incarcerating them, and even now. And, of course, now with that, you also have a, a, a mind state of slavery, not just physical but mental as well. So if this is how you look at yourself, this is how you live your life. And it was just amazing. I wish you could have come. I wish I could have, too. I was so looking forward to it. And then uh, we ran into car problems, uh, and you know how that goes. Did yeah. anyone actually call it slavery while they were there? And also was the uh, abolition, the third option against reform and no reform, was that even discussed? I don't remember. I can't say no, but I do not. I don't, I don't want to say no. I don't want to say no, but I don't remember that part of it. The other part of it, what did you ask? The first one was, was it called slavery by the panelists? And then secondly, was abolition presented as a possible answer? If this is slavery, then abolition would be an obvious answer. Yes, to both questions. Yes, I mean, slavery, apparently, it has not ended. It hasn't. How can it be so that it has? So, you know, that's obvious. And as far as abolition, I mean, several options were put on the table as far as reform is concerned. You know, uh, and, and, the, and the students are amazing because this was really the students of the NAACP. And so they put the forum together. And so the students that were in the audience, the questions that they asked were phenomenal as far as abolition is concerned. So, yes, it was brought up as far as reform. Um, and, and yeah, it was. So, yes, the, the answer to you is yes to both questions. Fantastic. I know that we find it's just about every forum uh, until recently, of course, Usually it's only presented as two options. It's either reform or no reform. And nobody ever mentions that maybe we need to get rid of some of these systems that are preying upon our people and hunting them like game. So as abolitionists, for us, that's always the first thing we say. Why do we have to fix something that isn't broke that's already criminal and should be abolished anyway? So why don't we just abolish it and then rebuild something humane and righteous on top of that mound that we leave behind? So it's good to know that the kids or the young folks are leading the way in this. Uh, as I said earlier, I was very surprised because I hadn't heard anything from the actual chapters themselves other than this uh, indirect message I got through Scotty. But to hear it from the collegiate chapter is wonderful. That means that this generation yeah. is not playing games. They yeah, see I it very clearly. They need not to because they're necessary. You know, we paved some of the way, but now it's their time. And I think the most amazing part of that room was just how uh, there were various races there. It wasn't just one or two or three. It was a mixture of students, and they were excited. And I, and not maybe not as packed as I thought it would be, but the ones that were there were very active as far as asking questions. And, and I think they are very they're going to be very very necessary in this fight. I would like to Scott, add to that, yes, yes, because I heard a podcast recently. But it is also generally we hear these stereotypes about quote unquote millennials or or whatever label they want to put on young people. And we get a bunch of stereotypes and and, you know, are we hear nothing but bad, 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 they're bad. And and I got offended. I got offended. So I'm trying to pick up we're getting some feedback from somebody's line. Uh, let me check and see if that's Max. It's, Okay, does anybody have us on? Yeah, that was uh, Max's line. Sorry about that. Max, I had to mute you. We were getting feedback uh, from you, bro. Um, But, yeah, I I just, I hear these stories. Like, for example, we reported on a story where the students 
um, involved in. I think it's the California University system. I know they got a different different systems there, but they were able to convince that that education system, that university system, to divest from Wachovia because of excuse me, not Wachovia, Wells Fargo, which uh, swallowed up Wachovia, but got them to dump uh, almost a half a billion in holdings and in assets that they had in this bank over its investment in private prisons and ensuring the private prison industry, uh, no different than what Wells Fargo was doing in the 1850s, you know, before the Civil War, pre-1865 slavery. So these young people did that. And so I, I, I love it when I hear these stories so that we can highlight them, and you are exactly right. They are the future. Even if people my age, which they say I'm a generational, a Generation X, or I was born in, in the 60s during the uh, uh, height of the black power uh, struggle, but um, I'm just so proud of those coming up behind us because, I, you know, we all have a role to play. And they're playing their they're playing their role as boots on the ground and engaging the system and bringing about changes like that. So I'm glad to hear about the enthusiastic young abolitionists that turned out to this event. Yes. Uh, do you know if there was any recordings at all of the panel discussion? You know, the sad part about it is brand new phone, trying to record it, couldn't. Um, I know several people in the room were recording. I would probably have to contact the school and just run someone down that hopefully um, got it on tape. But I know the students were taping it. So hopefully if I could contact them, which, no, I'm going to contact them. They're going to know me. Um, I would love to meet with them personally, especially to tell them about the march. Um, and I will make sure I'll ask them if they recorded it, if we could possibly get a copy of it, because I know they were recording it. I'm the only one probably in the room that couldn't, because I just couldn't get it to work. But I will find it out for you. Thank you so much, because things like that inspire others. Uh, They inspire others to to speak up, because, you know, that's really one of the hardest things we can get nowadays, is to speak up. You know what I mean? Like you tell somebody, read the 47 words, just read it and think about it. That's all you got to do. That seems to be a little tough these days. Um, let me ask you about the Millions for Prisoners March on Washington. What made you get involved and decide that uh, you would take a stand and help organize in Savannah, Georgia? And uh, what is your hopes for this at the end of the day on August 19th? At the end of the day, my hope for this march is to we want impart to the world the truth. Listen, if you've committed a crime and you've done something wrong, no one is saying that you should not be punished. However, mass incarceration is very real. There are a lot of people who are being um, incarcerated unfairly. And prison, the prison system is a big business. Lots of money are being earned by these inmates being housed on a daily basis. And so we're just trying to uplift and destroy some of the ills that go on behind those walls. Again, if you've done it, sure you belong there. But... For example, Khalid Browder, I don't know if you've heard of him, he was in the documentary, they mentioned him. He refused to take a plea. He was in prison, in not prison, Rikers Island. That's where I'm from. I'm from that city. And he was there for three years, and he would never plea. He refused. And they let him out. He was innocent. But what happened to him while he was in there, mental illness 
um, played a role, and he, he was broken down mentally, and he ended up committing suicide once he got home. He wasn't even in the prison system when he did it. But I, I use it as an example of an inmate who was, they were trying to make him free bargain. They know those black kids can't afford those trials. They can't afford those lawyers. They can't. You know, so he refused, but he ended up, you know, being freed, but he killed himself. But that's a tragedy because the prison system is dead. They don't give a damn as far as health is concerned, as far as mental illness is concerned. And solitary confinement is not normal. There's nothing about it that helps. Nothing about it. So just to enlighten everyone, the world hopefully, if they can, as far as the march is concerned, and inmates' lives matter, of the, um, the, Ill, the illnesses that go on behind those walls that we want to try to uplift and destroy if we can, as much as we possibly can. That's my objective. You know, we have talked in depth about Khalif Browder, and I'm not going to let them get away with uh, what they did that easily by saying he committed suicide. Mm-hmm. I think it was murder. I think that was murder because we've seen the videotapes where he was brutalized by guards. Right. We've seen right. where he was brutalized by the inmates, possibly sexually molested. He spent at least almost two years right. of his three years in solitary confinement. And the video where he spoke about himself, and, you know, like you said, not wanting to take that plea bargain because he was innocent. You said, you know, I talk to myself a lot. And I don't mean like the normal person, but because I spent so much time alone in solitary confinement, I have full-blown conversations with myself on the train, and I don't realize I'm doing it. It's just sad that this one child, he was a kid, he was 16 years old when he went into this adult prison. Yeah. Like it's just sad that he had to endure this. And we know that the price of incarcerating him in New York is $353,000 a year. And we know that that's why they incarcerated him, because they made nearly a million dollars on that's his incarceration right. for right. three years. That's right. You know, and he was innocent, like, yeah. He was innocent all along, and that was a bounty on his head. And over some allegation, he spent three years in torture. So I would call that murder. And, and you know, you said you're from the area down there, Rikers Island, uh, we our guest next week is a former Riker Island prison guard who wrote a tell all book. So uh, maybe we'll tune in and hear it. Yes, she's a lady. Yes, I, and I'm from her. Yes. I can't think of her name right now, but I saw on Facebook and I and I friended her because I was hoping that she could be on my own show. I'm not from that specifically. I'm from Brooklyn, which is about a few miles away from from there, so it's right next door. But yeah, I'm from New York, and so Rikers Island is like our county jail. That's usually where the, they go, you know, when they're waiting. It's a waiting process before they are, you know, tried and convicted and sent to the prison, you know, up north or whatever have you. And I've been to Rikers Island plenty of times to visit. <laughs> so I am aware. I'm aware. Yes, yes. I'm looking forward to that, too. It's just terrible circumstances. I'm really glad that the press release that came out from uh, Jailhouse Lawyers Speaks really clarify what the priorities of this march is all about. And the first thing is, is two points. Uh, I won't go into the, the, the other points just yet. That'll be later. But just for the sake of this conversation, A, we demand the 13th Amendment Enslavement Clause of the United States Constitution be amended to abolish legalized slavery in America. And B, we demand a congressional hearing on the 13th Amendment Enslavement Clause being recognized as in violation of international law, the general principles of human rights, 
and it's direct links to. And then they give a list of seven things that it's directly related to. So, you know, we're all coming down there for the same reason. We're tired of this. And I, I said at one point, if everybody who had someone in prison just had two representatives from the outside show up, there would be 48 million people in the streets. Right, right. Absolutely. So, yeah, I'm hoping at the end of the day there myself that we get some real change, that we have some legislation enacted that day that while we're there, and an education process where people get come to a shocking conclusion of what it is they're really facing and what's going on, not only here in the United States, but across the whole globe now. Well, is there anything that else that you would like to share with this Ms. section? Uh, I do. I want to, I want to, I want to, after that, after I say this last thing, I'm going to hang up because I'm on my phone. Um, there was a gentleman there by the name of Hashim, I want to say Azinga, and he mentioned a case that hits home for me. After this case is when I began the process of calling myself a freedom fighter. He brought up how those, the Central Park Five, and I know you know who I'm talking about. Yes. And those boys were manipulated, uh, abused. Um, only one, only one male in that group. He said, "Salani was the only one that did not confess or anything." He said, "Get my pad and get a lawyer," and that's it. That's all he said. But those boys were convicted over a crime that they did not commit. And when it finally came out that they did not do it, the DNA never matched anyway. Donald Trump wasn't even man enough to say I was wrong, even though he took out ads in the papers, million dollar ads saying, "Bring back the." the death penalty, kill them, um, wolf pack, dehumanizing them, just calling them all kinds of names. He wasn't even mad enough to say, I'm sorry. I just wanted to point that out, that this is the president. And so we have to be very mindful of the decisions we make. Uh, And from here on out, we just have to be very careful and and plan accordingly, because this is the president of the United States. And that's it for me. Thank you for your platform, and thank you for having me. And I hope that I can come back and, and just share with you guys again. And Would that be okay? If listeners in Georgia want to join the march, be it your uh, organization there, how you're forming it, uh, where would they go to? Hmm, let's see. I don't want to Huh. <laughs> let's see. Tasha I was, I was looking for somebody to tag you earlier, and I couldn't find anything. <laughs> That's why I was asking. Tasha Hickson, H-I-C-K-S-O-N, Osborne, O-S-B-O-R-N. At gmail.com. Tasha Hickson Osborne. There's no E at the end of Osborne. At Gmail. Email me and I can give you all the information. It's just that I'm, I'm riding now to try to get home and so I can't I can't do anything right now. But again, Tasha Hickson Osborne. And also on um, Facebook, um, I have a radio show in a Mocha Soul. So my, my name on the radio, well, on Facebook is Mocha's Show, like Tasha's Show or Ben's Show or Michael's Show, Mocha's Show. That's easy to find. Anybody that wants to find me, just look at Mocha's show, and I will pop up, and I will send you. I will, I will accept. Okay, great. Now, I remember who you were now, the Mocha show. Okay, perfect. Um, yeah, okay. definitely, because we want everybody in Georgia to get involved. If you're not involved with this, being on the sidelines sucks. I mean, even if you can't go, I mean, if you're like, you know, you're in a wheelchair and you don't have a ride or whatever it may be, click going anyway, just to show your support. But we want you there. Thank you for being here tonight. And thank you you're for going welcome. down and, and reporting on what happened. We'd certainly appreciate you. And we'll be here with you again, I'm sure. Thank you very much. Have a good night, okay? Good night. Peace and good night. Okay, bye-bye. Well, 
You've been listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on the Black Talk Radio Network. That was Tasha Hickson uh, calling out of Savannah, Georgia, with her report on the town hall meeting for the collegiate chapter of the NAACP in Savannah, Georgia, the passion that those young folks are showing about modern-day slavery and human trafficking. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back on the other oh, side, Max, we'll we changed the format, stage. remember? There's no break until the top of the hour. Okay, so we're going to go for an hour? All right, then. All right, well, I was reading, Scotty, some of the... I don't know if you can pull it up over there on the the website and our community programming uh, uh, planning page, but the press release that came out from Bayview, did you see that yet and go through it? Um, actually, no, I haven't had a chance to, Max, as I've been kind of bogged down with, with the other programs, and I'm actually doing that right now, getting uh, the stuff prepped for the next program. But uh, surely, I, I, that's why I'm here, like the listeners, man. I can I can uh, hear about these things, so uh, inform us. Sure, I'll read it verbatim. Uh, well, much and of this it is from also posted on New Abolitionist Radio once I get my computer working properly, and uh, you can read it from there. But where I left off was A and B. So it lists seven things that are directly related to the 13th Amendment exception clause and how it's used to exploit slavery and human trafficking. One, private entities exploiting prison labor. That's a very large group. Uh, there are conventions. Every year, uh, multi-billion dollar conventions where all these companies come together showing their wares and looking for their piece of the pie of this captive audience. Number two, companies overcharging prisoners for goods and services. This is really a, a very bad situation where even in the commissaries, it's three or four times the price it would normally be outside. You have certain uh, manufacturers that have exclusive contracts with these prisons. For instance, there's a, uh, there's a potato chip company that is only sold. They only sell their potato chips in prisons. They have an exclusive contract. I think the same thing applies for Reebok sneakers. Um, and, and a lot of these are no big contracts. So the next one being number three. Private entities contracted by state federal government to build and operate prisons. This would also include immigration detention. Now, as Johanna has often pointed out to us, these private prisons have also gotten now real estate uh, uh, certification. So they're operating as a real estate company. And they're also doing, again, these... Yes, Scotty? Yes, if I can make a point before you move on right there. I was just having a conversation with a friend the other day, and he has a radio uh, network that he runs, and so I had asked him, I said to him, somebody said something to me the other day about y'all program and y'all talking about during chattel enslavement. And that person said that, hey, chattel enslavement still exists. And and he was like, he, he does know that slavery uh, still exists. But again, with the programming and our language, we get so used to saying something and using these terms that that then we're making a distinction as if it's anything different than what it was prior to 1865. And so chattel means property. And I really appreciate that uh, research that Johanna, who couldn't be with us tonight, had done showing that is what property, that's another word for property. 
is chattel. And so now you got private prison companies who are registered as what? Real estate companies dealing with property. Chattel. Chattel. Chattel slavery still exists. So just I just say slavery still exists. If it, if we're referring to something in a historical context, I will say pre-1865 slavery. Right now we're in post-1865 slavery. Yes. You know, Brave New, uh, Brave New Voices had a wonderful series out called Immigrants for Sale, where they had in this one clip an auction was going on over a private prison facility, which was at the time was empty. And they were bidding or starting the bidding on it at $5 million. And one of the selling points that the auctioneer pointed out, which you can hear clear as day in the video, is he said that no matter what your business or what your trade is, there will be an endless supply of people coming into this facility. So you always have plenty of product for your customers. So basically that selling point is that you got free labor coming with the prison. So you can just build your factory right on in there and these prisoners will make whatever you want them to make. Which video are you talking one, uh, about, Max? I remember that's, one. Uh, Brave New Voices, uh, I believe it's called Immigrants for Sale. Are you talking about the scene where they were in a high, literally in a high school gym and it was like an auction and the guy was like, you know, just how auctioners speak and, and tell these people to get their private prison stock and, and bonds and all, all that kind of stuff? Or are you talking about, because, no, you can't be talking about that, but Unicorns got a commercial. auctioneer in the prison facility with all the potential buyers there sitting in a sitting like a, okay, like a high so school gymnasium, but it was the yeah. prison gymnasium or the prison area, and they were all sitting there ready to bid on purchasing this prison. Right. Okay. Now, I was mistaken. I, what I'm thinking of is, but that's a Unicorn commercial. Now, I think they may have tried to pull their commercials for those that don't know uh, what Unicor is. It is a private corporation owned by United States of America Incorporated. So it's a subsidiary of your government. That corporation that based down there in Washington, D.C., owns a, a private prison called Unicor. And they contract out, though they even have commercials where they show the prisoners in the, uh, doing whatever work they doing in the shop or in um, the call center and, and things of that nature. And then they paying these prisoners slave wages if, if they're getting paid at all. But I still, we have to track down where that money goes to. Where does that money from slavery that Unicorn generates? I, and Max, isn't it a billions annually? At least a billion it's annually. Over a billion. It was it was nine hundred million dollars a year in two thousand and twelve. So that was five years ago. It's well over a billion dollars Where now. Does They've this got money more go? contracts. Remember, we read how they were talking about potential employees. Speaking of prisoners, and how they were going to expand by two thousand and sixteen. Yeah, so, in the yeah, video, it's over they a billion was like, dollars a year now in revenue. And we've heard this throughout the years, these different stories where they say that's like a cap, like you said, a captive labor force. You don't have to worry about transportation. You don't have to worry about your prisoners calling in sick. You don't, I mean, excuse me, your workers, you know. <laughs> yeah, man. So please continue with this list. You know, 
I will. I, I just want to make a note. Uh, just yesterday, I was doing an interview with Al Jazeera, and they were talking to me about the prison labor work strike and focusing <laughs> on slave labor being used in the prison. And I want to clarify for them, just like, you know, in case you've got any new listeners, just clarify for them as well. The slave labor part is icing on the cake. That's extra money. You know, that's all, that's where greed comes in. Like, we, we don't make enough money doing X. We're going to do X, X as well. So this estimated about a million prisoners who are employed within the prisons themselves right now. But the biggest chunk of the dollar that they make comes simply by housing the prisoners. So if Khalif Browder, who we spoke of earlier, for instance, is picked up on the street, he immediately becomes worth $353,000 a year to that prison. For most prisons, like in New York, again, let's use an example, to house an adult is near $90,000. So that's a $90,000 a year income coming in for a piece of meat on a slab, and that's how they're looking at it. You're just a body on a slab, and it will move you from one state to another to fill their contracts. So just to clarify that, you know, prison slave labor is terrible, but for them it's icing on the cake. The next one would be racial disparities in America's prison population and sentencing. That's a really big one, Scotty. You want to say anything about that? Repeat that. Repeat that, Max. You may racial disparities in America's prison population and sentencing. We know that we've been hearing that for decades. And those who know me personally or have been following my program, Black Talk Radio News, for years since 2007, then you know I am not one of those people that try to act like racism don't exist. In fact, I say racism is a symptom of slavery because I can point to slave codes that first started incorporating racialized uh, language. So it's, it's not that. But in terms of this goes to something we were talking about on Tando Radio radio show. When you start talking, interject race into certain issues and topics, people get emotional on both sides. Not just the victims of racism, but those who perceive that they're being called racist because they're white, and then they get a defensive, and then there's a big squabble, and the problem don't get solved. So when we're talking about racial disparities, yes, they exist when we got de decades of data that show that to be true. So let's let's stop using racialized language, taking the advice of Mr. Neely Fuller, when we know we got to deal with white people to solve this problem. We got to deal with brown people. We got to deal with people. So since we know that language tends to make people emotional, Let's just let's just talk about it in terms of slavery. These are slaves, regardless of their creed, color, national origin, religion. They are slaves, and so when more people can then identify with with being a slave, it don't matter to them who which group um, is enslaved the most. All they know is they trying to end slavery. So I hope I'm not coming across like I'm trying to dictate to anyone. I'm just trying to be constructive and move it forward. And just some observation I have seen to how stuff gets bogged down. And so the new abolitionist uh, movement 
we don't really describe ourselves. I mean, we're we're the very diverse group. So you can use words like allies, whatever, uh, uh, comrades, whatever. I'm just looking at it as a bunch of people who see that slavery was never abolished and they are victims of bad information, of bad education, and they want to continue to work on abolitionism in this country till the job is done. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, for me, I, I know that after doing the Ferguson is America research that I did state by state and hearing other uh, statistics like just today, uh, listening to our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad on the video, I was informed via that video that three-quarters of all the people who have been exonerated in these past few years have been black men. Three-quarters of them have been black men. That's an amazing thing to consider in itself. And then also we know that one in eight people across the entire world who are incarcerated are African Americans because of our American prison system. And state by state, the disparities are just through the roof in places where you might have a 1.2% or less black population, they're still being incarcerated at 12 to 1, 14 to 1, 13 to 1. In D.C., where it's the closest thing to an equal population of half and half, it's still 19 to 1. So these racial disparities do exist. Just these two numbers alone <clears throat> should make you worry. 95%, as our guest pointed out, 95% of all cases end in a plea bargain, right? 95% of the prosecutors who are negotiating these plea bargains are white. So you got 95% white uh, population negotiating these 95% plea bargains with a majority minority population. You don't think racism has anything to do with that? Not you, Scotty, but just in general, people don't think let, that let me racism ask you this is question, involved Max. in that? Let me ask a question, uh, um, just a question about that. And that is correct. Um, um, these are racist suspects, white males. So obviously they're going to operate in, in that manner. But at the same time, though, let me also uh, look at ourselves. I'm part of the black community. We see all these urban cities and what have you. I know Charlotte has a whole bunch of black. Uh, dis maybe the district attorney isn't black. But the assistant district attorneys are. They actually go in and argue the cases. The district attorney can't do it alone. There's a team of people that's prosecuting. And I see people of all different backgrounds participating in that. So what's the point of me saying, oh, let me elect a black judge if that black judge doesn't have the, the uh, moral fortitude of Judge Stevenson? who doggone lost his license and they targeted him because of, of, of him saying, no, this ain't right. Yeah, all white About jury. All white jury. Yeah, what's going on here? You know, but then how many uh, black judges have, re have repeated what he has done? None. I can't think of any that have been reported. And, and so... He was suspended. Yeah, Almost he was suspended. lost his license at one point. And I didn't see no uh, no big rally around him or a bunch of money being raised for him and all that. But I'm saying I do see a lot of prosecutors who look just like me who are going along with the program. So, uh, uh, again, 
you know, racism is real. It's a part of slavery for whatever sick reason. The predominant population, which is white, has been programmed and accept the programming that it's okay as long as they keep focusing on those black people or those brown people or those others, you know, those Muslims, those, you know. But, but and, and so what we need is also for white people to confront their family members on this issue. And we, in our community, will confront our family members on this issue of slavery. I, I, I think that'd be a good approach. What do you think, Max? I think it is. It's always right, the right time to do right, Martin Luther King Jr. It's always the right time, uh, no matter how small it is. Even if it's somebody that's coming into your shop to purchase something and they say something like, oh, I'm going to get this thing so I can nigger rig it, which is a story a friend of mine recently told me. Well, you can look right at that person and say, excuse me, what did you say? And if they repeat it, say, look, I don't appreciate that language. It's racist. And I really don't want to serve you or provide you with any good of services. You can take your behind right outside and nigga rid your car on back to your house. But, you know, maybe that just takes a little more courage than some people are willing to offer. Most times they just go, oh, that's just Uncle Bubba. He always talks like that. Anyway, the next one would be policing. The disproportionate, unaccountable killings by police in the black and brown communities. That's another big one. And we've seen a report just came out today saying that uh, black males are twice as likely to be unarmed victims of police violence and killings as white males. But uh, we know that anywhere from 1,200 to 1,600 people are killed in this country every year by police. Whether they're right or wrong or not, that's count. And if you look at that body count over the course of 10 years, you're talking about a genocide. Yeah. But these, I do want to stress that these reports are important that come out, that do point out the racial disparities. I'm just talking about when I'm lobbying and I'm dealing with certain folks, the, the language, you know, we got to be more codified in our language when we dealing with suspects. And I'm talking about suspected slavers or those sympathetic to slavery or ignorant and don't recognize it as slavery. But in terms of human rights, in terms of taking this to the international community, the people who are producing these this um, report and reports like it are doing us a valuable service as it is docu documentation that this is racial-based slavery. And the UN has already sent a committee here fact on a fact-finding mission that took uh, testimony at several different town hall meetings they had in different places around the United States. You, it wasn't reported on. I can't remember at all by any of the mainstream media. Um, but uh, through Race Treaty, which is on Black Talk Radio Network, and then the Real News Network, which is based in Baltimore, that's how I found out about it. And and so they have already said that the United States owes reparations, not just for pre-1865 slavery, but the continued uh, 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 oppression through slavery, even though they're not calling it slavery but the continued oppression of police brutality which is slave catching is connected to slave catching and said they and terrorism 
terrorism against us. So it, these, again, I'm not saying these reports shouldn't be done or anything like that. I just want to clarify that because it's evidence to take before the international community and maybe one day into an international court and then we could have those proceedings that Max talks about in his poem uh, of the day slavery ended. Yes, sir. Well, we hold a trial, a version of the Nuremberg trials, because this is a crime against humanity. And like I said, she's the leader of the uh, Inmates Lives Matter group in there. And that's something that we don't seem to grasp, that not only do black lives matter, but black lives in prison matter, too. Don't You can't forget them. You can't go and say, let's just go and get some economic development. Let's invest in banks. Let's build businesses. Let's buy from each other's stores and forget all about all those millions of bodies going in and out of these prisons being exploited. That's just terrible when I hear people talk like that and don't even think about all of those innocent people that look just like them and want to be a part of that economic development too who are being exploited by these prisons and jails. So yes, yeah, it's a terrible circumstance we find ourselves under. Anyway, uh, just for the sake of time, let me go on to the next one. Felony disenfranchisement laws. Now, Scotty, if you want to take this one, I have my own thoughts on it, but I'm sure you do as well. So felony disenfranchisement laws are what Christopher Irving calls collateral consequences. I call it slave branding. That's what I call it. It's a permanent mark on a person's record. It is not literal. Well, people do get prison. Uh, tattoos and whatnot, but it's not a literal slave brand like back in the day when they would brand people like cattle and and what have you. But um, I call that felony status. That's a, that's a slave status. That means that you can legally treat this person as less than human. You can legally treat this person as less than other citizens. This is, he's not a citizen, He's or she's not a citizen. She is rele, relegated to felony slave status. And we hope that they will end right, that felony slave status will prevent them from getting any opportunities to advance their life, educate themselves, even just basically provide for themselves. So we hope that they will then go out there and commit crimes that's going to put them right back on our plantation as part of these millions of bodies that we generating so much profit off of. That's what I think about felony disenfranchisement. It's, fe it's slave branding. You know, as far as I know, there's somewhere in there 8 million men who can't vote because of this felony disenfranchisement. That's a Hell of a, a voting block of people that can't vote. And I've written in detail on the 13th Amendment. And the 13th Amendment is the reason why they have this disenfranchisement. The moment that you're convicted, you are now state property. You no longer have any rights as a citizen. You're not a citizen. You are owned and operated by this prison industry and uh, uh, indirectly by the Department of Justice. So you lose all your rights as a citizen. You don't have any First Amendment rights. No, You certainly don't have no Second Amendment rights, no Fourth Amendment right, no Fifth, no Sixth, no nothing. You're not even considered a citizen. And since all those rights are gone now, including the right to vote, even after you leave from these prisons, you still suffer from that continued collateral consequences due to your tenure as chattel slavery, as a chattel slave. 
So, yeah, it carries on for the rest of your life sometimes where you can't get any kind of assistance. And that causes reusable resources. Again, you know, thinking like they do, they don't see bodies. These are reusable resources. They expect you, and the stats show that for federal prisons, you are over 50% likely to return to prison within three years. For states, it's nearly 75% likely to return right back to prison within three years. So they're just creating circumstances where you have no choice. You can't get a job. You can't get an apartment. You can't get any assistance. And that little $20 check they gave you at a bus ticket is not enough to live on for the next six months or a year, however long it takes you to get your life back in order. Man, so they expect you to come back. Remind me, was it on one of the GEO Group's uh, um, earnings calls that we were listening in on? And did they not refer to these two human beings as repeat customers? Because, you know, they try to yes. use their own little coded language and what they call them repeat and customers. And they, they call them repeat customers and inventory. Yeah, that's right. But how the hell are you going to call people inventory? And this is like from the CEO of the uh, board of directors for the GEO group who we listen on uh, their calls. And that's what they were calling people inventory, repeating customers. The next one would be. Immigration and Customs Enforcement in their 34,000 detention quotas, uh, producing the world's largest prison population. Uh, what they're referring to is the detention quotas that our immigration centers have now, where you have to have a, a minimum at all times uh, of 34,000 people per month in these facilities. Can't drop below that. And I believe that the reason that that is in place is so they can have a continued income of a guaranteed amount of number. So if for whatever reason you start losing immigrants, you got to go get some more, just like the contract they had in Arizona for 100% occupancy for 25 years. So that money will continue to flow as is or better than it was. Anything on that, Scotty? More the same. More of the same. I don't have anything to add. More the same. All right, well, I'm going to try to read just like two more paragraphs, and then you can read, uh, people can read the rest of it on New Abolitionist Radio. It says, uh, once, uh, since this is an abolitionist movement to abolish legalized enslavement, a practice that is not solely limited to prisoners making products, but extends to a prisoner's mere body in an isolation cell being profitable. Since Supreme Court states in a longstanding precedent, roughly versus Commonwealth, 62 Virginia, 21 Grat, 790, 871, a convicted felon whom the law in its humanity punishes by confinement in a penitentiary instead of death is subject, while undergoing that punishment, to all the laws which the legislation in its wisdom enact for the government of that institution and control of its inmates. For the time being, during his term of stay, in the penitentiary, he is in a state of penal servitude to the state. He has, as a consequence of his crime, completely forfeited his liberty, but all of his personal rights except those which the law in its humanity accords is, the, is for the time being a slave of the state. It says it right there, a slave of the state. They are slaves of the state undergoing punishment for their crimes committed against the law of the land. In other words, prisoners themselves are the commodity. 
which explains why law enforcement's entire apparatus is geared toward capturing and bottling humans for the highest bidder, dead or alive. In you know, essence, this is an abolitionist movement to know, abolish man. legalized slavery, a practice that is not solely limited to prisoners making products, but extends to a prisoner's mere body in an isolated cell being profitable. It's terrible, brother, but they've got it on point. They know exactly what the problem is, and they're coming in with legislators and legislation and a million people to demand change. I really like the idea of the con congressional hearings, too. That was an idea that came up in our last planning stage, because that will give an uh, opportunity for discovery, which will lead to the trials that we really need to have in order to get these uh, criminals who have perpetuated crimes against humanity out of positions of power and to, into the very jail cells which they built for the citizens. See, that's why I think also we have to, well, we should always watch our words and the terminologies that that um, we are using. Um, so this kind of illustrates that to me when we say like, well, if they did the crime, well, what was the crime? He had a pound of weed. Well, wait a minute. Who did he commit a crime against? I don't know. The state, I suppose. Well, why the state? How is that a crime against the state if somebody grows some weed and cause the state said they couldn't do it? That's what the sister was talking about, that mental enslavement. We just accept things to be a crime. Where well, they did the crime now, they got to do time in slavery. You know, well, is the is the law itself? We this was also part of abolitionism pre eighteen sixty five, where people judged the law. And so again, we had to point back at ourselves: Are we sitting up on juries agreeing with these laws that were passed with the specific intent to provide a a slave population? This country can't. This country that's its number one commodity. It was founded on it. And they have used the power of media and programming to convince you that they ended it and, and no. So we even had to start judging, just like people when people got arrested for helping a, a victim of slavery escape and they got charged with aiding and abetting under the Fugitive Slave Act. Then what? Then those jurors said, you know what? Yeah, he did what y'all said he did. And, and you told him not to be helping no enslaved victims escape to freedom, uh, but we judge your law to be immoral and to be the crime. And so we find them not guilty. So again, we have to be careful about our language and we have to start thinking about these matters. Just because you wouldn't shoot some heroin doesn't mean that you should go along with putting somebody into slavery for shooting heroin. Where's the logic in that? How does that make sense? So now we are, are are literally, we the ones that's paying for these people to be slaves as taxpayers, as consumers, whatever. We're the one that's funding the entire thing. It's time to change our thinking on a, in a number of ways. But, Max, we up against the break, bro. All right. Well, we're going to take a break. I just want to point out that there's a video called Racism for Dummies by Romani, Ma Romani Malcolm, Malcolm, 
It's on New Abolitionist Radio. When you get a chance, check that out. It's a crash course on what's going on. The brother got it on point. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio with Max Parthas and Scotty Reed. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back after these messages. Since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Please and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. I want to get into our next story about what it actually costs uh, for incarceration these days. Well, before you do that, Max. Before you yes, do sir? that, let's open up the phone lines and invite callers uh, to chime okay. in. Uh, the phone number. You know, I actually invited Brother Sundi Moses to come in. So if you're here, and I told him 9 o'clock, if you're here, please press star, star, and just say something so we know you're on the line. Okay. Well, I want to open up the lines to anybody who wants to comment on anything we have going over on the program um, what you thought about our guest tonight, the new the um, uh, town hall that was in Savannah, Georgia, about, was it Savannah? Yeah, Savannah, Georgia, about yeah, the Savannah, 13th Georgia. Amendment. And uh, so the telephone number is 866-510-9025, 866-510-9025. Hit star star to unmute yourself. Go ahead, Max. All right. Uh, do we have anybody before no, I start? no. Okay, once again, it's Brother Sunni Moses, a former guest here on New Abolitionist Radio, who was also our, one of our 21st century riders of the Underground Railroad. If you happen to call in or you're listening, just press star star to speak up, because we want to hear your voice tonight if you do call in. All right, this is a new, story, a new uh, article that just came out from the Equal Justice Initiative. And the Equal De- Justice Initiative is a fantastic organization that does really good, thorough work. Now, we've been hearing numbers that people tend to pull out of their rectums and throw in the air about how much it costs for the United States to incarcerate the people that we have incarcerated now. More often than not, we've heard the number of $80 billion or $70 billion or $90 billion. Well, it's actually a lot more than that. Through my own research, I personally estimated that the prison industry in the United States is worth half a trillion dollars easily. With this number, you'll see how we're getting there. In a new report, the Prison Policy Initiative found that mass incarceration cost state and federal governments and American families $100 billion more each year than previously thought. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the annual cost of mass incarceration in the United States is, excuse me, is $81 billion. 
But that figure addresses only the cost of operating prisons, jails, parole, and probation, leaving out policing and court costs and costs paid by families to support incarcerated loved ones. The new report, Following the Money of Mass Incarceration, is titled, took a deeper look into the money in mass incarceration, and its findings revealed that private prisons are not the only ones financially invested in keeping millions of people incarcerated in this country. For example, almost half of the money spent on running the correctional system goes to paying staff, who form an influential lobby against criminal justice reform. Lesser known, private players that profit from mass incarceration, including bail bonds companies, which collect $1.4 billion in non-refundable fees from defendants and their families, phone companies that charge families up to $25 for a 15-minute phone call, and commissary vendors that bring in $1.6 billion a year. As Vox reports, research has found that soaring incarceration rates in the United States have done very little to enhance public safety or reduce crime. These, the stat states who makes up the majority of correctional spendings, localities, and the federal government nonetheless continue to spend billions every year to warehouse millions of people as a reflection, as the visualization shows it, of how wide and how deep mass incarceration and overcriminalization has spread in our country. And this is called following the money. It shows here we have the 80.7 billion just for public correction agencies, prison, jail, parole, and probation. Then you have $30 billion for judicial and legal criminal law only. Public employees are another $38 billion. Prosecutions, another $6 billion. Indigent defense is another $5 billion. Health care is $13 billion. Policing is $64 billion. Construction is $4 billion. Interest payments of $2 billion. Food is $2 billion. Utilities is $2 billion. Private corrections, $4 billion. Uh, private prison profits. $0.37 billion or $374 million. Bail is $1.5 billion. Civil asset forfeiture, $5 billion. Cost of families, $3 billion. Compensation, $2 billion. Telephone calls, $1.5 billion. Annual total, $182 billion a year just from what they found. Scotty? Um, I was sitting here thinking about a prior guest we had on from, I think, Missouri. Um, um, it was either you who invited him or Johanna. And the, the young brother, what's that, Max? Brandon Ellington, who is the state representative in Missouri. Right, right. And he, he said that when he was dealing with his colleagues on these issues, one of them straight up told him, that those prisons represent a lot of jobs in their community. So what you just ran down from that piece right there, that represents a whole lot of jobs, man. And we have to come to grips with it again that that is the sole number one way that this country makes money is people enslaving other people. And we all playing the role in it, man. We have to accept this. And we've had guests on who were former prison guards, and they said they realized they role, and that their job, their children eating, their children having a roof over their head, depended upon them participating in slavery, and they couldn't do it, and they quit. 
that is that is the that is how that is a true wake up right there. That's a true wake up. And so that is why I feel like a lot of these CEOs of USA Inc., a lot of these politicians don't really want to address slavery because they all they we hear what they talk about all the time, the unemployment rate or the government added so many jobs. Now, what, you know, the quote Max title of his poem, go look it up, the day slavery ended, do you realize the government be announcing that they lost so many jobs? But you know what? That is no excuse. That is no excuse for to continue this evil institution. Just We have to come up with something else, another way to make a living where we aren't harming people. Yeah, and you know, uh, as I said, I think it's more along the lines of half a trillion. And they've got it up to $182 billion. But they're not accounting for a lot of things in there. Uh, for instance, they're not accounting for the service providers that provide services or equipment. They're not a pro- pro- accounting for the labor that's being used in the prisons and the goods and services that they're making, like the $2 billion for Unicorn, which is just one company that exploits prison labor. And they're not talking about uh, quite a few things that I mentioned earlier where they have these conventions for goods and services and equipment that buy for these contracts with the prisons. So they're not even included in there. When you get it all together, trust me, you're going to be close to a half a trillion dollars annually. Half a trillion, not billion, trillion. Max, we um, I do believe... a quarter trillion now. It's a I, terrible thing, man. I do terrible. believe uh, we're joined by your the, uh, invited guest. <clears throat> Brother Sundi Moses, is that you on the line there? If so, just press star, star, so we can hear okay, you. Okay, that is perhaps not him, but we do have someone who would like to speak from area code 903. Uh, last four is 7643. Uh, welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. Go ahead with your question or comment. Thank you for joining us. Man, I was just joining in. Max, this is Swift Justice, brother. How you doing? Peace, brother. Peace and welcome. I was just listening. I just came in on the conversation, man, and I was just listening. I was, that's all I was doing. You know how I like to learn from you, bro. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, Swift Justice, uh, welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. Is it okay if I say where you're calling from? You want to leave that alone? Sure, you say I'm. I, I tell them myself I'm in Alabama Department right. of Corrections. Indeed, our brothers out in Alabama, right? Alabama Department of Corrections, uh, member of FAM, and uh, he's also a student of what's going on here, a student of history and current events, and uh, does kind of a podcast from inside as well to help help educate not only the people that's there with him, but those on the outside as well, with a firsthand perspective and some wisdom. I appreciate what you've been doing, brother. I mean, no doubt, but I'm inspired by soldiers like y'all, man. I, that's, y'all was, uh, inspires us because for the simple fact, if it wasn't for y'all out there doing what y'all are doing, brothers like us up in here wouldn't, wouldn't even have the hope to even accomplish the things that are being accomplished, such as the Million Man's, the Million Prisoners March in August. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's what gives us a drive, man. It's what gives my team with Unheard Voices a drive. And, you know, just being able to participate with what y'all are doing, because like I said, and I can't stress it enough, without y'all and society joining in, our voices are going to still be back in the 1980s and 70s and 60s where nobody's actually listening, and they're seeing us still as what they were seeing us then, and that is 
just inmates or just prisoners, and you know, his y'all's voices are, are allowing our voices to be heard. And it's, it's what we have to do, brother. We have to show them that you are human beings, just like their sisters and brothers and mothers and fathers. And that even if you might have made a mistake to put you in there, you don't deserve what's going on to you now. You don't deserve to be anybody's slave. I don't care what you did. And most people in there are in there for the most ridiculous things, man. So we want your freedom and we want your rights back. And we're going to fight to put that human face on you so people can recognize that you are human beings and our suffering means something. Well, you know, Max, I, I believe that in, in a lot of aspects dealing with society today is that's one of the biggest things that we're, we we have an obstacle with. I mean, because people see us as animals, and the media actually pictures us. They paint that picture of us like animals. And you know, true enough, I don't, I don't, I haven't heard the first time one man that has come before the act, the actual. Um, activist uh, standpoint or speaking out from inside of prison saying, hey, I didn't do nothing to be in here. Nobody has ever claimed that. But they're saying, listen, I, you know, the, the, the message that I hear and the message that I send people is this. I'm being held accountable by society. I'm being held accountable by the law. And you taught me a lesson when you held me accountable. And that is to be accountable and to hold others accountable as well. So you're getting mad now that we're holding the government accountable to what they, in the minimum, the bare minimum of how they're supposed to treat us and what they're supposed to give to us. And yet society doesn't understand. That is the real result on why our recidivism rate is as high as it is across America. Over 75% in five years shall return back to prisons because they are being treated and seen as animals. These men and women are begging and screaming just like in Delaware not long ago, man. Please let us be rehabilitated. Please let us change. Please let us get education. Please let us be a fill of our community when we return. I'm tired of being in that cycle. I'm tired of being in that revolving door. That's what they're screaming. I don't hear any other thing other than that. I mean, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but I haven't heard anything other, other than that across the nation. Well, you know, we were just mentioning earlier that uh, a rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad in the video I heard today, they were mentioning how three-quarters of the people who have been exonerated as innocent were black men. Right. And we've had record exonerations. So there there are a lot of people who have been accused of some terrible crimes, the most terrible, who have been innocent all along and were railroaded, uh, which is why I was hoping Sunni Moses was calling because he's one of those people who were tortured or confession as a child or, and then railroaded very much like the Century Park Five were, which our guest spoke of earlier. You know, those guys, those five were teenage boys who spent from 17 years in prison for a crime they never committed. But I was at the president of the United States who paid for a full-page ad to ask for their death. Yeah. But I would also, again, keep stressing to people that most of the p- victims of 21st century slavery and human trafficking are in there for so-called nonviolent drug crimes. Again, if there's no victim, where's the crime? All right, isn't it? What doesn't he have a right or she have a right to express their free will in a way uh, that they choose, as long as they're not 
harming and infringing upon another person's rights, liberties, and in pursuit of happiness. And so, so yes, they do demonize and they try to make that the face of everybody that's in there when in fact they are telling us from their statistics that most of them are nonviolent. So, you know, we need to keep stressing that. And, and again, re, I agree with Max 100%, regardless of what you did, uh, 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 we are supposed to be trying to restore you, trying to help you, uh, uh, and then when you get out, you know, so that you can be restored back to with the rest of us. But uh, putting people into slavery, making a profit off of them, it doesn't become a, about corrections. It doesn't. Uh, it isn't about rehabilitating anyone. It, no, it is about the bottom line, literally profit. So, but I, I do have to keep stressing that they tell us that's the government. The people keep up with the statistics that most of these people, 70% or more, are nonviolent, who I feel haven't committed a crime. No, what the government is the one that committed a crime. And I will quote right winger Ann Rand, uh, 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 who's admired among libertarians, and she says the only power, real power the government has. It is to uh, um, prosecute criminals. And when there are not enough criminals, then they simply create them. Black codes following at, following the Civil War during so-called Reconstruction. And we're just dealing with modern-day black codes, but they're also being applied to, to people based on their economic, social position on, on the capitalist ladder. So I just wanted to add that. But uh, um, no guy, I mean, excuse me, Swift Justice, y'all are in, just as much an inspiration uh, to us on the outside as you say we are, are to you, okay? It lets us know that what we're doing is worthwhile. Right, and we appreciate, we appreciate that. Uh, I, would like, I just want to add to what you was just saying there, uh, um, dealing with the nonviolence. And I'm going to speak from the Alabama standpoint. Um, I was just reading the other day, and, you know, I, I knew that the statistics in my brain was lining up to what I read the other day, but I just didn't have any uh, hard, concrete numbers. And I believe, Max, I had asked people one time how hard it would be for us to find out the uh, – it might have been you, it might have been somebody else, but I believe I had asked uh, how hard it would be to find out how, what the ratio to violent and nonviolent was in Alabama. Well, I stumbled across it. And they just gave a recent number that it was, and pay attention to me here, because they just said that the violent cases are up to 76% of the capacity of the prison in Alabama. And I was like, wow. But, you know, I run that through my brain, and I was like, but I see how this is happening. Because, and I understand, or understand this, the motto of DOC anywhere in the United States of America is, to create criminals, just like you were saying. And they're taking these nonviolent criminals and placing them inside of these prisons, which in today's time have become more and more and more violent. And they're having to adapt to the criminal mind frame and do what they have to do to survive to the point of where they actually are released because they're not receiving rehabilitation and education. They're being released back in society with nothing except that crime mentality. And they are actually 
turning into and, and, and morphing into nonviolent to violent crimes, and they're coming back to prison as violent criminals. And that's exactly what the states are doing now. They are actually creating these monsters, and then they're going to turn around and say, well, see, they're just violent animals. But that's right. the problem. That's the problem. Of course they're violent. You just threw them in one. I mean, I'm in one of the worst prisons in the state of Alabama. And I see guys lose their lives daily with nonviolent crimes, getting stabbed for not, and they have nonviolent crimes with guys in here, you know, who who, who are just hardcore. How whatever picture mm-hmm. you, you may want to uh, paint of the the actual convict, and, and they become these victims. Don't get me wrong; they have to make a choice. We all have to make choices, but that's just something that they choose to do. They choose to survive in what they've been in, been, been in, so they either wind up getting killed, getting stabbed, or wind up stabbing and becoming the one who does the stabbing and the killing. So that turns and morphs them into that animal. Instead of and actually finding... on purpose. I didn't hear you, Matt. What did you say? Uh, that seems to be a part of the program, that that's what they want, to create right. more criminals, as Scotty said. <clears throat> and that's so true. Yeah, you were pointing out that, you know, that these most of them are not violent criminals in these jails and prisons. As a matter of fact, the number is 718,000 of the entire total of our uh, fed, state prison population is violent criminals. The rest are nonviolent. So you got somebody who might be in there for writing bad checks or marijuana possession or an addiction problem, and now they got to learn how to be a killer because they got to live with killers. You know what I mean? Right. Like right. you just said, so it turns them into somebody who they were not when they got there. And it sets them free on society saying, okay, you've been here 10 years living as, a, as somebody who had to be a killer at any moment in time. Now go on out with society and be a good guy. You know, that reminds me of when I first came to prison, Max. I was 16 years old. I went to uh, Fountain way back in the early 90s. <laughs> Now, mind you, I'm not being funny when I see this, but I was young and I was, I called myself pretty back then. (laughs) So when I got in in this system, I I walk in, I remember walking in the back gate. You you hear all the cat calling and all the whistling and all this. And you know they're whistling at you. And then growing up, we've always heard about the prisons and we've watched the prison stories. So everything running through my mind as a young kid at that time was, I got to do what I got to do to survive. So when I get into the dorm, Okay, and mind you, I'd have gone to prison where I didn't hurt not a single soul, but I went to prison, and I go to the dorm, and I get called by called back to the shift commander's office a good 15 minutes after I've been in the dorm, and I remember this like it was yesterday. They marched me from the shift office. This was a sergeant and a lieutenant. They marched me from the shift office to the lockup area. They told me to walk into this cell, which was nobody was in it, and told me to look around. I'm a kid now. And they told me to turn around, and I turned around, and I looked at the sergeant, and the sergeant looked at me and said, son, if I catch you not fighting down that hallway, this is where you're going to spend the rest of your time at. Now, that sale scared me more than the fight scared me. So it wasn't 30 minutes later. I went down the um, hallway, and I actually put me a lock in a belt on a, a, a lock on a belt and cracked somebody up the side of their head. I could have killed them. But I was just given permission and an order to be fighting down that hallway. So 
the mind mentality that I adapted from that from that standpoint on was just totally life changing in in, in in my life. And and I'm not going to sit there and say that uh, that I I re- regret the choice I made that day because I've survived in prison. But I am going to sit there and say. I don't think that that was the right thing to be telling a 16-year-old or even a nonviolent offender that's a grown man because he, he really robbed him of a choice then because you're, you as a, as a leader, as a guard, as a correctional officer, you have told me I better be fighting down that hallway because we're not going to save you. Wow. This terrible and that man. still happens today. <laughs> that still happens today. I see it every day, single, every single, single day in, in, in the prison still today. I mean, Things will go on, and you know they'll go up there and try to get help, or they'll try to go to lock us, and they'll just throw them right back in the prison. I mean, the the most recent killing, I remember getting word from uh, from another prison where there was a, a young man that was killed. He, he I think he was like months from going home. Uh, they said that he had got into a fight earlier that day with an inmate, and the administration sent them back right back out there into the population in the same dorm together. And it wasn't an hour later, and this young man was dead because the administration didn't want to do their job. Terrible, man. It's it's just terrible. And we've had judges come to some of these facilities and call them cesspools of constitutional violations. And they were talking about the jewelry centers. And we know that the adult centers is even worse. So Max, we have no regard for the children or the adults. Yes, Scott. Yeah, um, I want to ask uh, Swift Justice, can he give a, and, and I want to acknowledge the uh, caller, uh, we will come to you after Swift Justice gives us a response, but can you give us an update on kinetic justice? I know in December um, it was reported that he was assaulted by two correctional officers at Limestone uh, how is he doing health-wise? Uh, do, have you any information that you could update us on on his well-being? Well, as everybody already knows that has any knowledge on kinetic, man, Robert Earl is a soldier. And shy of killing him, he's going to tell you he's doing good. And I know Robert Earl myself very well, and I love him to death. And, but the last we heard was about the assault. Um, he gets every now and then a letter out to uh, the Queen team, and they they share what he says. Uh, but he's in good spirits, man, and he's just what he's doing is he's doing exactly what anybody that does know him uh, expects out of him. He's doing nothing but rooting us on and telling us not to stop doing what we're doing, because you know this is his, this is his baby. Everybody knows that this he, he lives for this movie, and uh, I. I can't speak good enough about him, man, because actually Kinetic was the one who brought me into the movie. He used to live right next to me years ago, and I used to listen to him, listen to him, listen to him. And, you know, it just rubbed off on me to the point of where I got on got, in, got on fire, too, for the movie myself. But as of right now, what we've the last we heard, he's doing good. He's in good spirits, but he's still fighting with Limestone Correction Facility and the administration and to be honest with you, it's really not the administration at Limestone that's got him in the position. That, it's a personal bandana from Grant, uh, Grant Culliver, uh, and he is a, the assistant commissioner of Alabama Department of Corrections, and, and, and he's, a, he's something else. I don't know how to, how to say he's just something else, but that's why he's where he's at, and they thought that maybe by shutting him up, 
they was going to shut up Alabama. But, you know, that, of course, as you see, that's not going to work either. Well, thank you. You know, in Alabama, this moment, there's a 200% capacity going on, and they're negotiating as whether or not to get an $800 million uh, paycheck to build more prisons. Releasing people is not part of the deal. Well, Meg, no, no we, that's never even been a thought. That, that, that's their scare tactic, Max. That's all they've been doing is they've been saying, look. And, and I don't remember, I don't know if you remember the video that they kept showing about the uh, riot, the small little riot that went on at home where the guys was getting up there, you know, burning the windows and all that. But the media is steadily playing that one clip over and over and over and over again, painting the picture, as we said before, of the animalistic ways of uh, the, the men in prison. But that's what they do. They get on these. They'll, they'll get in these uh, press conferences and they'll say Jeffrey Dunn and Cam Ward, Senator Cam Ward, will get up there and say, "If we do not build these new prisons, we're going to have to release these type of people back into society." Mm-hmm. And now, don't get me wrong. I believe society in Alabama is starting to come to the grasp of, "Hey, we really don't care what you're going to do. That's we that don't affect us." But what is, what is affecting us is the schools that you're robbing from because they've been, for years, just to push the ADOC along, they've been robbing the funds of uh, the Alabama school system. And just recently in Montgomery, the, the state had to take over the, the Montgomery County schools. So the school system is really, really, really bad off. And I think, this, I think society in Alabama is um, starting to come to grasp that we really don't care and we ain't, we're, we're not really going to be supporting you as far as uh, building these new prisons. And I honestly don't see them building uh, these four new prisons. Don't get me wrong. They're probably going to compromise at some point and build at least one or two. They're going to have to for the women's prison, which is something that I want to put out there. I don't think that we move enough for the women here in Alabama. I think that the voices in Alabama should be heard more about these women because they have gone through pure hell at Tuttle All the way from yes, sexual assault to rape. So, you know, I, I think I think their voice needs to be heard more, too. I mean, I know that we don't in Alabama. Let me rephrase that. Unheard voices hasn't really touched on it. And I feel really bad and guilty for that. But these women in, the, in Tulsa, they need just as much attention as men do. Because I, I feel for them. I really do. Because I know what treatment we get. And it, it's probably 100 times worse with them being that they are females and guarded by a bunch of knuckleheads. Well, Sweet Justice, uh, um we do have a caller we want to bring into the conversation, but um, I do want to take a moment to pause for a station identification break. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, your digital home for independent black media. Uh, we got a caller from area code 414. Please go ahead with your question or comment. Thank you for joining us tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, thanks for bringing me in. Uh, greetings, uh, Scotty, uh, Max, and uh, I don't know if Johanan is on the line. And uh, thanks uh, for the guests for coming on. Uh, I just got a couple of questions for you. Uh, when you was laying out <clears throat> what you went through when you were 16 years old, um, I went to prison when I just turned 18. And my question for you is what the guards uh, did for you and told you, is that was that regular behavior? Like, do they do that for all of the inmates? You know, from my experience at that time, I, you know, I wasn't watching everybody else. With me at that point, that I was just focused on, focused on me. But as the years have gone by, I've seen that pattern and that action. Now, mind you, 
things have changed now nowadays to the point of where they're coming in young like that. Now, I, at, at that time, I was the youngest at the prison. Um, so it was kind of abnormal for them to see somebody as young as I was at that time in the prison system. But, yeah, it is a normal uh, reaction. You know, they're going to tell you, they're going to, if you go up there just got beat up, even today, you just got beat up. Uh, you go up there to try to tell one of them, which, you know, from a convict standpoint, you know, I don't agree with it. I, I, I think you should go and, and beat, their, beat their tail if, if you just got beat up. But at the same time, if you chose to go up there to this correctional office, uh, um, shift commander office right now and said, okay, I just got beat up. The very first thing they're going to say, okay, go pay your drug debt. That's automatically going to be what they assume. Go pay your drug debt, get your butt back out there, and we're not going to deal with you. And the next thing you know, you have other altercations to the point of maybe where somebody got killed, seriously injured, or whatever. I mean, that is pretty much the um, same pattern for everybody. But to touch on the youth, of course, I'm sure you're familiar with TRIA, the Federal Act of TRIA. You know, they, they have a law now where they have to separate. If you're not 18 years or older, you cannot be in the main part of the uh, prisons now. And in Alabama, I do believe it's in um, down in Elmore County where they have Draper Correctional Facility. That's where they house their uh, kids. I call them kids from the ages of 15 on up to 18 years old now in a separate dormitory from the uh, main part of the prison. Okay. Uh, thanks for answering the question. I really just asked the question because that type of behavior, I think that the guards displayed, was out of the ordinary. And um, from my experience in prison, the guards don't care whether you fight or what happens to you. They just kind of let you go. And uh, thanks for taking my call. Indeed, man. I appreciate you asking it. Um, and anytime you got questions or comments, feel free to chime in and. Let us know, and we'll try to get it answered as best we can. We're kind of running a little low on time. We've got about 20 minutes left and two segments left to go. Um, do we have any more callers on the line, Scotty? Swift Justice, is there anything that you want to say to the people before we go on to the final two segments? Man, the only thing I want to stress to the, to the society is, we are human beings, and we do want to see change. That's why I founded Unheard Voices. I'm very serious, Max, about seeing change. I don't want to stay the same as I used to be. And I know that there's many men up in here that sit down and come and see me daily, and they say over and over, I don't want to go back to the street who I was. I want to go back as somebody else. I mean, these guys want change. The thing about it is, is we have to have society to start seeing us as who we really are now. We're human beings. We're fathers. We're brothers. We're sons. And we want to go back to society with our family and stay there. But I want to tell everybody out there, I appreciate all the support all over the United States of America for what everybody's doing, especially Max and uh, Crystal Roundtree, everybody that's involved in the movement. Um, I, I got a lot of love for y'all, man, and I appreciate y'all having me on. Thank you, brother. Anytime. Well, Scotty, anything? No, man. Um, I, I'm just inspired, man. I'm inspired from what we heard out of Georgia with the young people organizing um, the 13th Amendment Town Hall, having that discussion. Um, I'm just even... I'm just so inspired, man, with the upcoming March in August. And I was thinking today 
about, wow, man, we really need to do more on the on our end in terms of the marketing. We have to market this. I hate to talk like that and make it seem like, but that's how that's, right. we have to market it. So I was thinking today, you know, I got to come up with some PSAs. I got to start interviewing people and getting these out and just keep pushing and pushing and pushing uh, this march, you know, which is going to follow the historic national prison strike against slavery by the victims them, themselves. Um, so I, I'm just really inspired, man. I'm inspired to hear from Swift Justice uh, tonight to get that bit of news from Connecticut because, you know, at one time, Max, when we first started this program, um, we were like saying we need the victims to speak out. We need the victims to recognize that it's slavery. And and we've seen that, man, in a short five years. It's just it's just man is just so inspiring and i feel very humble um to be in in part of this movement man it's just great it's a great time to be alive because we have a chance to do something that's never been done before in history and that's abolish slavery and we're not talking about yes, the legal lies the kind that's already outlawed that's a very worthy cause to rescue people from forced labor you know, involuntary servitude, yes, sexual slavery and all of that. But at the same time, you have to acknowledge that we're talking about legalized slavery and human trafficking. So, you know, not telling you to take your focus off those other victims of that other form of slavery, but just make room in your program for the victims of legalized slavery through the 13th Amendment. That's all I got, Max. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we recognize the slavery they're dealing with, but they don't recognize the slavery we are dealing with, and we need you to do that. We need you to start understanding that this is slavery and human trafficking, and it falls directly under the categories that you fight every single day in organizations like End Slavery Now. So uh, if you're listening and you're a part of that organization, you need to contact some people higher up and tell them maybe you should look at that 13th Amendment circumstance that these people are dealing with in the United States, and maybe you should also consider... There might be a reason why we have the largest prison population in the history of humanity on planet Earth. Might just be a reason for other than coincidence. We're coming up on our last couple of segments, which is our Rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad and our and Profile. Um, unless we have any other callers or questions, I'll go into that segment. All right. Um, our first, our first segment is our ride of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. We recognize people who have regained their freedom through the help of people on the inside and on the outside, sometimes in unusual circumstances. Often we see patterns and practices of prosecutors and courts and judges that have railroaded these people right into 20, 30, or 40 years in prison when they never did anything. And that is what happened here today with our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad, Tony Wright. He walked out of the prison where he, yes, sir. Scotty, did you say something? Okay, well, this is from October 4th, and it says, When Tony Wright walked out of the prison where he spent 25 years of his life for a brutal crime he didn't commit, he raised his hands up in a sign of victory, grateful to be free. God is good. God is good. God is good, he said, surrounded by his family and his lawyers. This past August, a Philadelphia jury acquitted Wright 
of the 1991 rape and murder of a 77-year-old woman. He had been just 20 years old when he was arrested, a father with a young son and a full-time construction job, when he found himself in handcuffs. Wright said he felt numb. He couldn't stop crying. My whole body shut down, he said. He said Philadelphia police questioned him about the crime, and a detective came in with papers for him to sign. I wanted to look at the papers and see what I was signing, Wright said. They said, just sign the papers and you'll go home. Everything they told me to do, I did. The papers contained a detailed confession written in longhand by the detective. It even noted the clothing he had allegedly worn to the crime scene with great detail, the black sweatshirt with Chicago Bulls logo and a pair of blue jeans with suede on them that detectives say they later found in Wright's apartment. Wright was tried and convicted, sentenced to life in prison. It was years later that DNA evidence would tell a different story. A team of lawyers, including Peter Neufeld and Nina Morrison with Innocence Project, fought for years just to get permission to conduct DNA tests on the rape kit and clothing that had been entered into evidence at Wright's first trial. When the DNA evidence came back supporting that Wright had not committed the rape, he said it was one of the happiest days of his life. I wanted my family to know that I was innocent. He said, imagine how important that is that your family know you didn't rape a 77-year-old woman and murderer. He said, I wanted the victim's family to know that Anthony Wright didn't commit a heinous crime against their loved ones. But even with DNA evidence supporting Wright's claim of innocence, this fight isn't over or wasn't over. The prosecutors decided, I don't care. I'm going to take it to trial. I'm going to invent a whole new theory of guilt, even if I have no evidence to support it, Newfield said. That's so offensive. It's so immoral. Cost Tony a lot more years. Wright's case went to trial a second time, six weeks ago. A second jury found Wright not guilty after deliberating for less than an hour. I almost passed out, Wright said, recalling how he felt when he heard the verdict. I think... I think I let out the loudest scream in the courtroom. I think my son let out the second loudest scream. Jurors embraced him after his retrial. The jury forewoman said at the news conference afterwards that they found the evidence so compelling that there really could be no other verdict. In statements to ABC News, the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office stood by the evidence and witness statements collected by detectives and said, Prosecutors could not blankly have dropped the matter without even going to trial, not in the face of the still compelling evidence of guilt. This was a murder. The verdict only shows that the jury did not find that Anthony Wright's guilt was proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Nationally, nearly two-thirds of all the people exonerated through DNA evidence are African American, according to the Innocence Project. It's hardly unreasonable to conclude that there is some racial bias at work, says Innocence Project, Nina Morrison, whether that's in who gets targeted, who gets prosecuted, why cases don't get dismissed earlier in the process, bias on the part of the judges or juries that end up convicting these individuals, we don't know. But certainly there are questions that need to be answered about why Tony was wrongfully prosecuted in the first place. You can read the rest of this story on New Abolitionist Radio. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio would like to say welcome to freedom, Tony Wright. Salute, brother. Welcome. Exactly. Oh, man, it looks like we lost swift justice. Because I was just about to ask the brother to give us a pitch 
uh, why people should participate in the upcoming uh, march for prisoners' human rights march against modern day slavery. But hopefully, we can catch up and arrange that. I was just trying to think on the fly, Max, because we don't normally get to talk to people who are presently, you know, in, in on a prison plantation. So, uh, but yeah, at least not on the air. Yes, yeah, he's he's gone. So. Um, yeah, um, we do need to move on. Um, we do have our abolitionists in profile. Um, we will again profile William H. Day. Uh, William Howard Day was born October the 16th on 1825, um, and he died on December the 3rd, 1900. He was a abolitionist, a editor, a educator, and a minister. He, he, uh, he was born in New York City. His mother was Eliza, a founding member of the first AME Zion Church and an abolitionist. His father was John, and he was a sailmaker, a veteran of the War of 1812 and Algiers in 1815. He died when his son was four. The Willistons of Northampton, Massachusetts, raised him. They asked his mother to allow them to educate him. Uh, let's see. In 1834, he joined the Henry Highland, Highland Garnet and David Ruggles to form the All-Male Garrison Literary and Benevolent Association. Day attended Oberlin College and graduated in 1847. He dedicated his life to the rights of blacks in the United States. In 1848, he was in Cleveland, where he became the secretary of the National Negro Convention. He was the editor of one of the first weekly African-American newspapers, the, um, what is this, the Alien American. It was published in Cleveland, Ohio. He used the paper to support the abolitionist cause, as in this excerpt from April the 9th, 1853. We speak for humanity. If humanity be a unit, wherever it is cloven down, wherever rights to common to human beings are infringed, there we do sympathize. Um, let me see, in 1858, Day was elected president of the National Board of Commissioners of the Colored People by the Black Citizens of Canada and the United States. He was also active in the cause of the civil rights of the Northern Black minority. In 1858, he and his wife Lucy challenged racial segregation and public transportation in Michigan. On the eight, so let me continue. In in the 1858 case. Day versus Owen, the Republican-dominated Michigan Supreme Court ruled against him and upheld segregation. In 1859, he visited England, Ireland, and Scotland with William King to raise money for a church and schoolhouse at Elysia in Buxton, Ontario. He met Martin L. R. Delaney, the father of the Black Nationalist Movement, and Professor Campbell of the Institute for Colored Youth in London, and together the group founded the African Aid Society. He remained in Great Britain during the American um, Civil War. They died in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania on December 3, 1900 at the age of 75. 
He is the William Howard Day Cemetery was established in nearby Stilton in the 1900s as a burial place for all people, including people of color who were denied burial at the nearby Baldwin Cemetery. It remains a popular burial site for the local African-American families. New Abolitionist Radio salutes abolitionist, editor, educator, and minister William H. Day. Salute. Most sir. definitely. Well, yeah, most definitely. Well, let, let me just say this, okay. though, about, about uh, our abolitionists in profile. So we thought it was in the 1960s that some black people had some courage to say, I don't think it's right for you to be taking my taxes, taxing my property, charging me sales tax, and I can't ride the bus or I can't use this public service. I'm paying for it. And so we were told, see, this is why it's important to read. We were told that Rosa Parks was the first one to challenge that, you know, but it was a teenager, a teenage mother who was a couple of years before Rosa Parks. Now we find out that uh, abolitionist Howard Day and his wife actually challenged it in, in court back in the 1800s. It's, Man, this this man, I tell you, man, I just get inspired reading about the courage of these people during a time of open terrorism and 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 and, and their ability to rise to the occasion. Yes, sir, man. Yes, sir. Sometimes this program can wear your soul down, but it's necessary. You got to face up to these things. You got to look at them as they are not as you want them to be or as you were told they are. you got to face the truth. And as Baldwin said, we may not be able to solve every problem, but we can't solve any problem until we face them first. So this is what we're asking you to do is face these truths for what they are. Well, there are two stories that I did want to get to. We won't have the time for tonight. I want to just give you a general perspective of how this thing has gone global, but I think you already know that. I know that uh, one of the articles is regards to a Turkey uh, newspaper that said they're about to build uh, 174 new prisons in Turkey following the U.S. model of mass incarceration for profit. The same thing is happening in Brazil. Their most brutal prisons, which are infamous across the globe for how bad they are, were just sold for $750 million to private prisons. So you can see this thing is going global and has gone global. Scotty, any final words for the evening for you? No, I just want to thank um, our guests, um, our unexpected guests, and our callers. And that's all I have um, for you tonight, except for I'm just, I'll close it out by saying I'm so inspired to be a part of this new abolitionist movement. Oh, one last thing. Um, towards establishing or, or in our propaganda war, to to push this issue in front of more people, uh, we are establishing a platform called New Abolitionist Movement dot uh, com will be the web address. I'm I'm still building the platform, but it will be for abolitionists uh, of all stripes to come aboard and uh, publish whatever it is they would like to publish. Upload videos, record podcasts 
what have you. And of course, this program will be uh, there as well, all the podcasts and what have you. But I'm excited about that because, again, as I was reading uh, Mr. Day's biography, uh, a publisher, propaganda, propaganda has always played a role in this. When I was listening to Swift Justice talk about how they demonize the prisoners and, and, and make them look like demons and, and animals. And look, media played a role in all of that. The newspapers were, were publishing similar things about the victims of slavery back in the, in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, 21st century. They ain't changed the programming. So uh, it, it is up to us to do everything in our power to harness those weapons at our disposal uh, so that we can bring about the day that slavery finally ended. Yes, sir. Um, I'm going to keep it real simple. I just put up a video from my comrade and my brother, of The Last Poets. And it's a new video that he just recorded while overseas called Pellerino, and it's one of those locations where, which was the hub of human trafficking, and from this location he performed this video uh, called Pellerino. You're going to want to see it and experience it. Shout out to my brother, Abio Duno Yewole, the last poet who was included in the African American uh, Museum history there in Washington, D.C. I guess my final statements would be this. If you have not joined a local group that is involved in the Millions of Prisoners March on Washington, do so. If there's no local group in your state or city, make one. All you got to do is put together a Facebook post and have people join it. You can work out how you all get together to get there, but be proactive about this. We need every single body that's available right now. When we walk down to Washington, up that street, we want the streets to be so overflowing that no cars can pass, no bodies can walk, no businesses can run because there's just so many people there. We can do this together. This is not your ordinary march. But most of all, I want you to remember this, because it's time. Abolition is a reason for a revolution, so we can finally know some peace. Peace. Rise up, rise up, rise up, rise up, rise up. Lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up.